This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, my guest is the novelist Gary Steingart, and he chose a story by Andrea Lee that came out in the winter of 2000 called Brothers and Sisters Around the World. The girls squatting under the mango tree stare hard at me whenever I sit out on the beach or walk down to the water to swim. They stare at me and guffaw and stretch and give their breasts a competitive shake. Gary Steingart is the author of two novels, The Russian Debutante's Handbook and Absurdistan, excerpts from which appeared in The New Yorker. He was born in St. Petersburg, which was then Leningrad, but left Russia when he was seven and has lived in New York on and off since then. Hi, Gary. Hi. Now, when I was coming here today, I was trying to think up some parallels between your writing and Andrea Lee's writing. I couldn't come up with much. She um, writes about elegant, wealthy Europeans and American expats in Europe, and you write about low-grade criminals and con men who try to take advantage of wealthy Europeans and expats. (laughs) The circle is complete. (laughs) What is it that draws you to her writing? I first discovered her in uh, 2004. I was living in Rome for a year. I had no idea about uh, Andrea Lee's background, uh, an African-American woman who had lived in Turin for a while. And I saw her story, La Ragazza. And the story concerns the very typical relationship that exists in most uh, upper-middle-class to upper-class families in Italy, the relationship between the head of the family and the maid, uh, also called La Ragazza in this story, but sometimes referred to as La Filipina. So I remember uh, Italians at parties would ask me, you know, Gary, what kind of uh, Filipina should I get, a Ukrainian or a Romanian, you know? <laughs> There's such a rigid, established order in much of Italian society that you do sometimes feel like the maid, uh, like, like the ragazza or the Filipina. It's so filled with codes that you know you'll never crack. And that's something that really excited me, the way the story tried to expose all these different codes. In the story I'm about to read, there's a very interesting line where the um, the protagonist is uh, an African-American woman who goes to Madagascar, and she's talking about some of the young uh, Madagascar girls that she meets, and she talks about how they want to meet tourists and trade sex for T-shirts or hair clips, these young girls. Mm-hmm. And then she writes, they don't know to want Ray-Bans yet. This is not the Caribbean. And that's something that Andrea Lee does so exceptionally. She knows how these different societies, uh, what kind of codes they use to signify different things. Uh, And I've only been familiar with two countries in my life, Russia, really, and and, and America. And I would say, in some ways, I know Russia better than I do America, understand it better. So for me, this was almost my introduction to Italian society, reading these stories and then reading uh, her collection of stories called Interesting Women. And the attraction is, I suppose, partly that she writes about all of this also as an outsider herself, having moved from the U.S. to Italy. Yes, very much so. And I think, you know, throughout her career, that's been the position that she writes about being uh, an African-American young woman who goes to a school uh, where she is the only one uh, who is is a person of color, going to Harvard, uh, later being an outsider in Italian society, or being partly an outsider in Italian society. To say just outsider really diminishes what she does, because her characters understand a lot more than the reader often understands. And at the same time, they stand sort of astride the society. They're, they're both in and out of it. And that's really a great position for any writer to be. And I think much of my favorite kinds of literature, 19th century Russian literature, for example, uh, deals with characters who are maybe, if not superfluous men, certainly uh, people on, on the margins of what is accepted. As you said, the story Brothers and Sisters Around the World is about an African-American woman visiting Madagascar with her husband on vacation. Um, is there anything else you think we should listen for as you read it? 
first of all, you can listen to me mangling French for, for, for quite a while. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is so many of her characters, most of her characters, are very physically attractive. I don't really read about attractive people very often. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't write about them. So to me, any hints of, uh, of, 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 a, of a nice uh, physique is, is, is fun to read about. You know, it's rare. It's rare. <laughs> we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Gary Steingart reading Brothers and Sisters Around the World by Andrea Lee. I took them around the point toward Zamanzar, Michelle tells me. Those two little whores, just ten minutes. They asked me for a ride when I was down on the beach bailing out the Zodiac. It was rough, and I went too fast on purpose. You should have seen their titties bounce. He tells me this in French, but with a carefree lewdness that could be Roman. He is, in fact, half Italian, product of the officially French no-man's land where the Ligurian Alps touch the Massif Central. In love, like so many of his Mediterranean compatriots with boats, with hot blue seas, with dusky women with the steamy belt of tropics that girdles the earth. We live above Cannes, in Mougin, where it is always sunny, but on vacation we travel the world to get hotter and wilder. Islands are what Michel prefers. In Asia, Oceania, Africa, the Caribbean, it doesn't matter. Any place where the people are the color of different grades of coffee and mangoes plop in mushy heaps on the ground and the reef fish are brilliant as a box of new crayons. On vacation, Michel sheds his manicured ad-man image and with innocent glee sets about turning himself into a Euro-trash version of Tarzan. Bronze muscles well in evidence, shark's tooth on a leather thong, fishing knife stuck into the waist of a threadbare paru, and a wispy, sun-streaked ponytail that he tends painstakingly along with a chin crop of Hollywood stubble. He loves me for a number of wrong reasons connected with his dreams of hot islands. It makes no difference to him that I grew up in Massachusetts, wearing L.L. Bean boots more often than sandals. After eight years of marriage, he doesn't seem to see that what gives strength to the spine of an American black woman, however exotic she appears, is a steely Protestant core, a core that in its absolutism is curiously cold and Nordic. The fact is that I'm not crazy about the tropics, but Michelle doesn't want to acknowledge that. Mysteriously, we continue to get along. In fact, our marriage is surprisingly robust, though at the time of our wedding, my mother, my sister, and my girlfriends all gave it a year. I sometimes think the secret is that we don't know each other and never will. Both of us are lazy by nature, and that makes it convenient to hang on to the fantasies we conjured up back when we met in Milan, mine of the French gentleman adventurer and his of a pliant black goddess whose feelings accord with his. It's no surprise to me when Michel tries to share the ribald thoughts that run through the labyrinth of his Roman Catholic mind. He doubtless thought that I would get a kick out of hearing about his boat ride with a pair of African sluts. Those girls have been sitting around watching us from under the mango tree since the day we rolled up from the airport to spend August in the house we borrowed from our friend Jean-Claude. Michel was driving Jean-Claude's car, a Citroën so rump-sprung from the unpaved roads that it moves like a tractor. Our four-year-old son, Lele, can drag his sneakers in red dust through the holes in the floor. The car smells of failure, like the house, which is built on an island off the northern coast of Madagascar, on a beach where a wide scallop bay spreads like two blue wings, melting into the sky, and the wild archipelago of lemur islands beyond. 
Behind the garden stretch fields of sugar cane and groves of silvery, arthritic-looking lang-lang trees whose flowers lend the tang of Africa to French perfume. The house is low and long around the grandiose veranda and was once whitewashed into an emblem of colonial vainglory. Now the walls are the indeterminate color of damp and the thinning palm thatch on the roof swarms with mice and geckos. It has a queenly housekeeper named Hadija, whose perfect pomfrit and plates of crudité, like the dead bidet and dried-up tubes of bande soleil in the bathroom, are monuments to Jean-Claude's ex-wife, who went back to Toulon after seeing a series of projects, a frozen fish plant, a perfume company, a small luxury hotel, swallowed up in the calm fireworks of the sunsets. Madagascar is the perfect place for a white fool to lose his money, Michel says. He and I enjoy the scent of dissolution in our borrowed house, fuck inventively in the big mildewed ironwood bed, sit in happiness in the sad bottomed-out canvas chairs on the veranda after a day of spearfishing, watching our son race in and out of herds of humpbacked zebu cattle on the beach. The only problem for me has been those girls. They're not really whores, just local girls who dance at the Bar Caribou on Thursday nights and hang around a few French and Italian tourists hoping to trade sex for a T-shirt, a hair clip. They don't know to want Ray-Bans yet. This is not the Caribbean. I'm used to the women from the Comoros Islands who crowd onto the beach near the house, dressed up in gold bangles and earrings and their best lace-trimmed blouses. They clap and sing in circles for hours, jumping up to dance in pairs, wagging their backsides in tiny precise jerks, laughing and flashing gold teeth. They wrap themselves up in their good time in a way that intimidates me. And I've come to an understanding with the older women of the village who come by to bring us our morning ration of zebu milk, we drink it boiled in coffee, or to barter with Rideau Richelieu, the beautiful muslin cutwork curtains that they embroider. They are intensely curious about me, l'Américaine, who looks not unlike one of them, but who dresses and speaks and acts like a foreign madame and is clearly married to the white man, not just a casual concubine. They ask me for medicine, and if I weren't careful, they would clean out my supply of Advil and by Maxin. They go crazy over Lele, whom they call Bebe Meti, the mixed baby. I want to know all about them, their still eyes, their faces of varying colors that show both African and Indonesian blood, as I want to know everything about this primeval chunk of Africa floating in the Indian Ocean with its bottle-shaped baobabs and strange tinkling music, the sega, which is said to carry traces of tunes from Irish sailors. But the girls squatting under the mango tree stare hard at me whenever I sit out on the beach or walk down to the water to swim. Then they make loud comments in Malagasy and burst out laughing. It's juvenile behavior, and I can't help but sinking right down to their level and getting provoked. They're probably about 18 years old, both good-looking, one with a flat brown face and the long, straight, shining hair that makes some Madagascar women resemble Polynesians. The other darker with the tiny features that belong to the coastal people called Merina and a pile of kinky hair tinted reddish. Both are big-titted, as Michel pointed out, the merchandise spilling out of a pair of Nouvelle Frontière t-shirts that they must have got from a tour group leader. Some days they have designs painted on their faces in yellow sulfur clay. They stare at me and guffaw and stretch and give their breasts a competitive shake. Sometimes they hoot softly or whistle when I appear. My policy has been to ignore them, but today they've taken a step ahead. 
got a rise, however ironic, out of my man. It's a little triumph. I didn't see the Zodiac ride, but through the bathroom window I saw them come back. I was shaving my legs, waxing never last long enough in the tropics. Squealing and laughing, they floundered out of their rubber dinghy, patting their hair, settling their T-shirts, retying the cloth around their waists. One of them blew her nose through her fingers into the shallow water. The other said something to Michelle, and he laughed and patted her on the backside. Then arrogantly as two Cleopatras, they strode across the hot sand and took up the crouch under the mango tree, a pair of brown Natsuki waiting for my move. So finally I act. Michel comes sauntering inside to tell me, and after he tells me, I make a scene. He's completely taken aback. He's gotten spoiled since we've been married, used to my American cool, which can seem even cooler than French nonchalance. He thought I was going to react the way I used to when I was still modeling and he used to flirt with some of the girls I was working with, some of the bimbos who weren't serious about their careers. That is, that I was going to chuckle, display complicity, even excitement. Instead, I yell, say he's damaged my prestige among the locals, say that things are different here. The words seem to be flowing up into my mouth from the ground beneath my feet. He's so surprised that he just stands there with his blue eyes round and his mouth a small O in the midst of that Indiana Jones stubble. Then I hitch up my soleado bikini and march outside to the mango tree. Vatan! I hiss to Red Hair, who seems to be the top girl of the duo. Go away! Ne pas plus avec mon homme! The two of them scramble to their feet, but they don't seem to be going anywhere, so I slap the one with the straight hair. Except for once, when I was about ten, in a fight with my cousin Brenda, I don't believe I've ever seriously slapped anyone. This, on the scale of slaps, is half-assed, not hard. In that second of contact, I feel the strange smoothness of her cheek and an instantaneous awareness that my hand is just as smooth. An electric current seems to connect them. A red light flickers in the depths of the girl's dark eyes like a computer blinking on, and then, without saying anything to me, both girls scuttle off down the beach, talking loudly to each other and occasionally looking back at me. I make motions as if I'm shooing chickens. Allez-vous-en, I screech. Far off down the beach, they disappear into the palms. Then I go and stretch out in the water, which is like stretching out in blue air. I take off my bikini top and let the equatorial sun print my shadow on the white sand below, where small whitefish graze. I feel suddenly calm, but at the same time, my mind is working very fast. My dear, who invited you to come halfway across the world and slap somebody? I ask myself in the ultra-reasonable tones of my mother, the school guidance counselor. Suddenly, I remember another summer on yet another island. This was in Indonesia a few years ago, when we were exploring the back roads of one of the Moluccas. The driver was a local kid who didn't speak any language we spoke and was clearly gay. A great-looking kid with light brown skin pitted with a few acne scars and neat dreadlocks that would have looked stylish in Manhattan. A princess dye t-shirt and peeling red nail polish. When we stopped at a waterfall and Michel the adventurer went off to climb the lava cliffs, I sat down on a flat rock with the driver, whipped out my beauty case, and painted his nails shocking pink. He jumped when I first grabbed his hand, but when he saw what I was up to, he gave me a huge ecstatic grin and then closed his eyes. And there it was, paradise. The waterfall, the jungle, and that beautiful kid with his long fingers lying in my hand. 
It was Michel who made a fuss that time, jealous of something he couldn't even define. But I had the same feeling I do now of acting on instinct and on target, the right act at the right moment. Mama, what did you do? Lele comes running up to me from where he has been squatting naked on the beach, playing with two small boys from the village. His legs and backside and little penis are covered with sand. I see the boys staring after him, one holding a toy they've been squabbling over, a rough wooden model of a truck without wheels tied with a piece of string to a stick. Ismail says you hit a lady. Word has already spread along the beach, which is like a stage where a different variety show goes on every hour of the day. The set acts are the tides, which determine the movement of fishing boats, pirogues, zodiacs, and sailboats. There is always action on the sand. Women walk up and down with bundles on their heads. Bands of ragged children dig clams at low tide or launch themselves into the waves at high tide or surf with a piece of old timber. Yellow dogs chase chickens and fight over shrimp shells. Palm branches crash down on corrugated iron roofs. Girls with lacy dresses and bare sandy shanks parade to mass. The little mosque opens and shuts its creaky doors. Boys play soccer, kicking a plastic water bottle. Babies howl. Sunburned tourist couples argue and reconcile. Gossip flashes up and down with electronic swiftness. I sit up in the water and grab Lele and kiss him all over while he splashes and struggles to get away. Yes, that's right, I tell him. It's the firm, didactic voice I use when we've turned off the Teletubbies videos and I am playing the ideal parent. I did hit a lady, I said. She needed hitting. I, the mother who instructs her cross-cultural child in tolerance and nonviolence. Lele has a picture book called Brothers and Sisters Around the World, full of illustrations of cookie-cutter figures of various colors holding hands across continents. All people belong to one family, it teaches. All oceans are the same ocean. Michel, who has watched the whole scene, comes and tells me that in all his past visits to the island, he's never seen anything like it. He's worried. The women fight among themselves, or they fight with their men for sleeping with tourists, he says but no foreign woman has ever got mixed up with them. He talks like an anthropologist about loss of face and vendetta. We might get run out of here, he says nervously. I tell him to relax, that absolutely nothing will happen. Where do I get this knowledge? It has sifted into me from the water, the air. So as we planned, we go off spearfishing over by Nusikumba, where the coral grows in big pasted poofs like furniture in a Hollywood bedroom of the 50s. We find a den of rock lobster and shoot two and take them back to Jean-Claude's house for Hadija to cook. Waiting for the lobster, we eat about 50 small oysters the size of mussels and shine flashlights over the beach in front of the veranda, which is crawling with crabs. Inside, Lele is snoring adenoidally under a mosquito net. The black sky above is alive with falling stars. Michel keeps looking at me and shaking his head. Hadija comes out bearing the lobster, magnificently broiled with vanilla sauce. To say she has presence is an understatement. She got married when she was 13 and is now, after eight children, an important personage, the matriarch of a vast and prosperous island clan. She and I have got along fine ever since she realized that I wasn't going to horn in on her despotic rule over Jean-Claude's house or say anything about the percentage she skims off the marketing money. She has a closely braided head and is as short and solid as a boulder, on the spectrum of Madagascar skin colors well toward the darkest. 
This evening she is showing off her wealth by wearing over her parayu a venerable Guns N' Roses t-shirt. She puts down the lobster, sets her hands on her hips, and looks at me, and my heart suddenly skips a beat. Hers, I realize, is the only opinion I care about. Oh, madame, she says, flashing me a wide smile and shaking her finger indulgently, as if I'm a child who has been up to mischief. I begin breathing again. Oh, madame. Madame has a quick temper, Michelle says in a placating voice, and Hadija throws her head back and laughs till the Guns N' Roses logo shimmies. She is right, she exclaims. Madame a raison. She's a good wife. Next morning, our neighbor, Pierre Luigi, pulls up to the house in his dust-covered Renault pickup. Pierre Luigi is Italian, and back in Italy has a title and a castle. Here he lives in a bamboo hut when he is not away leading a shark-hunting safari to one of the wild islands a day's sail to the north. He is the real version of what Michel pretends to be, a walking, talking character from a boy's adventure tale with a corrugated scar low down on one side where a hammerhead once snatched a mouthful. The islanders respect him and bring their children to him for a worm cure he's devised from crushed papaya seeds. He can bargain down the tough Indian merchants in the market and he sleeps with pretty tourists and island girls impartially. Nobody knows how many kids he has fathered on the island. I hear your wife is mixing in local politics, he calls from the truck to Michel, while looking me over with those shameless eyes that have got so many women in trouble. Pierre Luigi is 60 years old and has streaks of white in his hair, but he is still six feet four and the best-looking man I have ever seen in my life. Brava, he says to me. Good for you, my dear. The local young ladies very often need things put in perspective, but very few of our lovely visitors know how to do it on their own terms. After he drives off, Michel looks at me with new respect. I can't say you don't have guts, he says later. Then, you really must be in love with me. In the afternoon, after our siesta, when I emerge onto the veranda from Jean-Claude's shuttered bedroom, massaging plage into my hair, smelling on my skin the pleasant odor of sex, I see, as I somehow expected, that the two girls are back under the mango tree. I walk onto the burning sand, squinting against the glare that makes every distant object a flat black silhouette, and approach them for the second time. I don't think that we're in for another round, yet I feel my knees take on a wary pugilistic springiness. But as I get close, the straight-haired girl says, Bonjour, madame. The formal greeting conveys an odd intimacy. It is clear that we are breathing the same air now, that we have taken each other's measure. Both girls look straight at me, no longer bridling. All three of us know perfectly well that the man, my European husband, was just an excuse, a playing field for our curiosity. The curiosity of sisters separated before birth and flung by the caprice of history half a world away from each other. Now, in this troublesome way, our connection has been established, and between my guilt and my dawning affection, I suspect that I'll never get rid of these two. Already in my mind is forming an exasperating vision of the gifts I know I'll have to give them. Lace underpants, Tampax, music cassettes, body lotion, all of them extracted from me with the tender ruthlessness of family members anywhere. And then what? What, after all these years, will there be to say? Well, the first thing to do is answer. Bonjour, mademoiselle, I reply in my politest voice. And because I can't think of anything else, I smile and nod at them and walk into the water, which, as always in the tropics, is as warm as blood. The whole time I swim, the girls are silent, and they don't take their eyes off me.
That was Gary Steingart reading Brothers and Sisters Around the World by Andrea Lee. The story is included in her collection Interesting Women, published by Random House. Her most recent story, Three, appeared in the September 22nd issue of the magazine. You can also find it online at newyorker.com. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Gary, Lee would obviously be just as good a writer if she'd never left Pennsylvania, but... One thing you do get from almost all of her stories is this pleasure of being an armchair tourist. And when you finish the story, you feel as though you've actually been to Madagascar. Is that something that appeals to you in her work? Very much so. I mean, one of the things that I do for a large portion of my year is travel writing. I love to eat different animals and stuff and go around the world eating them. Uh, So there's a wonderful uh, travelogue kind of component to a lot of her works. One story is set in uh, Sicily during the tuna hunting season, and it is just so vivid, the the blood coasting through the Mediterranean. It, it made me uh, order an ahi burger the next day. I was, <laughs> But on the other hand, I'm also very much drawn to her stories about Pennsylvania. They were written, I think, quite a while ago uh, in the early 80s, I believe, or mid-80s, and, and they have a very different tenor. She's obviously at that point still a writer trying to find her voice, but there's something so beautiful about some of these stories. Uh, there's one story called Servant Problems where a young girl who attends a Quaker school for a while where it's not as racially segregated uh, then goes to a school where she is the only African-American person in the school, and this is from the story. Early in my first month at Prescott, I sat down on my mother's lap after dinner, and she asked me what school was like. Well, it's a little like being in a play, I said. Everyone's watching me all the time. I had hoped to make her laugh, but she startled me by bursting into tears. Later, I heard her say to my father, we have to be careful. That school might ruin Sarah. I think that's a wonderful paragraph, the idea that you're always acting. Uh, And that is often how one feels uh, when one is abroad. I think there's a double 
play here in terms of her being an African-American woman thrust into, into a certain kind of American society and then doubly so because she is an American also thrust into European society. This is what a lot of her characters are. And I think that really captures just the grand sense of dislocation that people have these days in the world. As you were saying earlier, a lot of what she does is not just tourism in a sense or reporting, but it's sociology. What she really gets at in her work is the distinctions of family, class, money, and race, and how they all uh, play out together and how interactions occur across these dividing lines. And that's obviously what's at play in this story, no? Yes. RCG, we used to call it at, at Oberlin. Uh, it's a difficult school in the Midwest. Uh, RCG, race, class, gender, you know. Yeah. And if you could hit all those three uh, consonants, then you would be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, she's playing. It's, it's quite a deck of cards. Um, the one thing I've always said that I've been blessed with is being Russian, American, and Jewish. And, and that's, a, that's a big Megillah. That's a lot to work yeah, with. Yeah, R.A.J. Uh, exactly. <laughs> R.A.J. Well, I, I, I'll just call R. you Raj. <laughs> you know, that's the nickname I've been searching for all my life. Um, but she's definitely RCG. She definitely has that. That, that component, uh, not, and, and also the transatlantic. But, but without the political con- correctness the that, political that would correct- imply. Yeah. Exactly. Without the political correctness and also without the overt politicization. Mm-hmm. And what, what you can tell from, for instance, the title of her collection, Interesting Women, is what's at play here is not really Michelle. The whole argument is over who, you know, who possesses Michelle. But he's completely sort of incidental to what actually happens and what's, what, what interests Andrea. Yes. The yeah. marginalization of the man is a great tactic. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's uh, she does it quite well, and, and, and it just comes out of nowhere in the end because for a while she does make you think that Michelle is the, is, is yeah. the object of this. So it's, it's quite a nice slate of hand at the end of the story. And, and what seems to be important to her is not whom Michelle finds attractive, but whether these women respect her. Michelle is simply a, one small element in this fact. They've, they've laughed at her on the beach and so on, and him having slapped the woman on the butt is just the final straw. But it's really not to do with him. It's to do with a certain degree of respect that she expects and desires from these women and is going to go out and get. In her stories, there is certainly a very European understanding of love. Uh, the men in the stories, all uh, in, in their middle age, are expected by their wives to sleep with everyone, you know, the, the whores and the she maids. Has, she has that story, the birthday present, where the, yes. the wife buys her husband a, <laughs> some what prostitutes a great for his birthday. Story. Yeah, two prostitutes. She buys uh, two Brazilian prostitutes. It's a, it's a wonderful story and a wonderful idea mm-hmm. uh, in general. Um, you're right. It's, it's the respect of women that's, that's where things hinge upon. Even in that story, in the end, she wants, I think, those, those prostitutes to respect her or to have a connection with them yeah. as opposed to the man. Yeah, it seems to be not. Uh, interestingly, it doesn't actually have to do with class in this story because even uh, towards the end where she says the, the good opinion she wanted most is the housekeepers. It's Hadijah's, not, uh, not Michelle's. Not Michelle or Jean-Claude's or any of the yeah. other men that yeah. circle the story like so many uh, white sharks. She's most concerned that, that this woman who ostensibly works for her um, approves of her. It's interesting to me, you know, she talks about them as being her sisters and, and about being flung across the ocean by the caprice of history or something of mm-hmm. the sort. And I wonder, does this in some ways fall into the genre of, uh, of writers going back to some ancestral homeland, which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is what a lot of uh, certainly Jewish uh, American writers have been writing about recently. And I wonder if this is also some kind of uh, need to connect with something very elemental, which, which doesn't exist on these shores. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the end, it would seem that that is one of the, the concerns of this, of this writer. Yeah, well, by the end, she's, she's pretty much part of the clan. Do you think that has to do with the, purely with skin color? Or you think it has to do with mores or the way that she's responded? I think the characters in her works, much like most people, are quite unhappy uh, wherever they are, uh, whether it's in some palazzo in Milano or, 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 or uh, you know, chasing tuna across the Mediterranean or lying on a beautiful beach. There's a sense of disquietude. There's a sense of unhappiness and, and of being incomplete. Her characters can never express this yearning to be complete. They don't know how to talk to each other beyond what the upper class has been taught, which is you talk about the, how the pasta is doing in the cooker and how, you know, how, uh, uh, how the alpine ski chalet is doing and all these different things. Everything is very much on the surface, but there is definitely a hunger and a yearning in all of these characters, and it will never be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the marginalization of the male her stories are very, very female. Now, as a, a male reader, how does how do how do you respond to that? Oh, it's so exciting! I've been so <laughs> I've been so mailed recently. Uh, so many uh, enough, you know. And I'm I, I'm very happy to to just to say the word Tampax uh, at a New Yorker podcast. It's, you said it well. Uh, thank you, <laughs> Tampax. <laughs> I should have put. I don't a little, know. A little Malagasy accent. Malagasy there. accent. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 um. All the characters are evenly, even-handedly presented, I think. There's a, the man may be marginalized, but we understand at least what his M.O. is at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Going back just to the, the question of respect, by the end, you think actually that this character has shown the, the Madagascan woman more respect by slapping her in the face than Michelle did by slapping her on the butt. Well, that's a very provocative thought. Um, She's she's taken her on in some way as an equal instead of just an object. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, because and I think Jean Claude says this that the women who come here would never interface with the women in any in any way. Mm-hmm. They would view them the same way they view the zebu cattle, just as mm-hmm. something picturesque and interesting, and maybe a little threatening, you know, uh, toward their husbands or, or just in general, but never to be contacted directly. And she talks about it being a kind of a half slap, not a mm-hmm. real uh, violent physical action, but just a half slap and in the way that maybe young sisters would interface with each other. And I think that that's something that's... uh, The relationship between these women, between her and these women, is just perfect. Mm -hmm. It's just pitch perfect. And what really impresses me is the the use of language in these stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I teach a course on immigrant fiction at Columbia, and we always talk about to what extent should a writer from a specific culture use the language of that culture. Uh, For example, Juno Diaz using Spanish to such a great extent uh, in in his Mm -hmm. work. So here it's very interesting because she throws in almost everything in her cupboard. There's the, the mm-hmm. Malagasy terms, there's, there's French, there's Italian. And, and mm-hmm. what she does is she, she wields all her knowledge with skill. It never seems like it's there just for the purpose of showing off or, or, or providing a visceral thrill for the reader of, of hearing the, this kind of language spoken or hearing mm-hmm. something exotic. There's never anything exoticized about her, about her work, even when she's in the most exotic locales, the Madagascar, Spearing Tuna, etc. Well, uh, on the question of her language, there's a real luxuriousness to it. Just a sort of gentle flowing of, of images, one, one into the next, that you can almost miss if you don't look too closely. You can say, oh, yeah, I see the beach, without stopping to think about how she describes it, which is, which is quite special. She both calms you and then provokes you, you know. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely uh, something soothing about just the way objects and other things are arranged in her stories. And after mm-hmm. reading some of them, I go and I, I hug a Louis Vuitton suitcase and just sort of <laughs> cuddle up with it and, and, and feel better about myself and my place in the world. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Deborah. 
Gary Steingart's latest novel is Absurdistan, which is published by Random House. You can find previous fiction podcasts at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.